morning, everybody. It's a privilege to be here this morning with you. If you're visiting or if you're not visiting, it's going to be a little bit of an odd sermon this morning. Um, I have, hopefully you all had a paper here. If you didn't, raise your hand. There's probably a few left. Okay, one, one up here if you want one. Just a little, just a little uh, sheet to follow along this morning if, you, if you're inclined. Um, as far as it being different this morning, um, I, I'm going to share a little bit of a testimony. As some of you don't know me at all, some of you know me quite well, um, maybe too well. And then after the testimony, I, I want to share a little bit of my vision um, as, as it concerns Bridgeport and the shift we're looking at with the the leadership, and then as we come toward the end, I'd like to just give us a challenge from the scripture. Um, so let's pray together. It's great to be together, isn't it? God, thank you that we can gather, as was said. It's only by your mercy and your grace that we can do this, that you've called us, that we have a desire to be here. Let that desire grow deeper as we come together this morning and as we go along in our journey of faith, thank you for your word that we can gather around as truth. Thank you for the Gideons and the word going out. We ask your blessing on them and on each Bible that's printed and then handed out. Just pray that you would help the words that I have this morning to be communicated clearly and that we would find ourselves looking to you ultimately in Jesus name. Amen. I guess I should say if you don't know me I'm Jonathan King. The reason for me sharing a testimony is so if you're if you're part of the body if you're a member here and you you can then decide whether you're not want to vote on me in 2 weeks or not. This may be your chance to uh, change your mind. I should say Pastor Ron has been at Bridgeport as pastor for nearly as long as I've been alive. So that gives you a little perspective. Faithful, faithful ministry by Pastor Ron. I, I was born, privileged to be born in, and raised in a Christian home. My parents are normally here. They're not today, but they are part of this church. At seven years old, I, I made a decision for Christ on my own. This was following some direct disobedience. Maybe that's been the case with some of you. And uh, along with John Newton, we can say, I'm a great sinner, but he is a great Savior. It only takes once, doesn't it, to separate us from God, but he is a great Savior. In 1989, I was seven years old. Again, my family moved to Oregon. We moved right over here. We started coming to Bridgeport and kind of never left, never stopped going to Bridgeport. And this is essentially where my roots are, grown up in this church. Many of you, like I said, know me quite well. There's some good and some bad to that, but um, I consider this family. Somewhere about my mid-teens, I, I, I recall consciously deciding, you know, if I'm going to take this faith, this Jesus thing seriously, I've got to do that for myself. I can't ride on the tails of my parents or because I go to church or, or whatever else it might be. I need to make this mine. I stand before God. And I remember that being a bit of a turning point. One of many turning points, but a, a kind of a starting place of my own faith at that point. 
moving along, graduated high school, um, had some jobs here and there in the area, a few missions trips, worked with Guy, uh, with the youth group on the leadership team, did some Christian summer staffing or staffing at Christian summer camps, those sorts of things. And in 2004, I moved to California, Reading, where I went to Shasta Bible College for four years. So in 2008, I graduated from Bible College. Those years were were great years for me. Lots of growth, learning, fellowship, and of course, meeting my wife, Laura, and marrying her in 2008, right after graduating. Um, We have five girls, by the way, five daughters, Laura and I, and so thankful for my family. After graduating, we lived and I worked on the family farm in Bonanza down by Klamath Falls, Oregon for two and a half years or so. And in, then in 2010, we moved to Tacoma, Washington, where I attended seminary with a couple, three, four good friends, which was another great time of growth, of learning, of stretching. Um, that seminary was called, was called Northwest Baptist Seminary when I graduated. It had merged with Corbin University. And that's what it is now. So that we, we graduated in 2013 and moved back to be in this area. And our greatest motivation for moving back here was to be a part of Bridgeport. We wanted to have a place of health and life spiritually for our family. And we knew or we felt that this was that place. And that's, we've continued to go here. We feel it is that place. Now, over the years, I should say, God, God's given me a desire for ministry, if you will, whatever you want to do with that term, but some, a desire in my heart to, to be in full-time ministry or in more of a, a position of ministry, um, if, you, if you know what I mean by that. We're all in ministry, but um, this has kind of been my long, long-term hope and, and goal as I've worked over the, over the last eight years, construction and starting my own business at home. Um, I originally didn't picture this as pastoral, and I didn't picture it at Bridgeport. But over the last couple, three, four years, God's been working with me and with all of you, and we're, we're to this point. And I want you to know that I think of Bridgeport as, as home, as family. And we love and value all of you. Some of you I haven't met, not very many of you, but a few of you, and I I look forward to doing that, but the fellowship we share here is because of God's love toward us and because of the love we share. And as we move forward, this is the, one of the main reasons I'm excited about teaching and preaching and leading here. This is home. This is family. God's merciful and faithful, isn't he? He, is, he has been to me. That's a short bit of testimony. If you want to know more, you're welcome to ask. <laughs> let's, let's jump in then a little bit, um, and this is where your handout will, will start a little bit here. If I have some blanks there, if you'd like to fill in, you're welcome to. Um, it may not be that intuitive, so you may get lost, but in any case, um, I, think, I think there's some clear blanks there that I, I will make sure to mention the, the word, just to help us follow along. I want to share a little bit about my vision or this direction, the shape we're taking, we're, we're looking at with the leadership. Hopefully you've pondered some of these upcoming changes. Two weeks ago, I believe, Paul stood up here and talked about the changes that the elder board has been discussing and 
Then there was an email sent out, um, and hopefully you've been able to ponder these and pray about these. And I'd just like to share my perspective on these things for, at this time. Um, I feel that through these months of pastoral searching, God has been at work. Without all the details of that right now, God has been guiding the elders, the search committee, and finally me as an applicant to move in this direction, this, this new shift in leadership. To broaden the base, as, as to use the, the elders' term, to broaden the base of our ministry here, to shift slightly in how we do things. And I, I want you to know that I'm not saying that things were done terribly wrong in the past. Okay, that is not my communication here at all this morning. But we want to follow God's direction in a shift to our approach at this juncture. So firstly, we want to be scriptural, don't we? We want to be biblical in our church structure. Now, it's not that we haven't been. Get, get me clear there. It's not that we haven't been. But I want, to, I want to look briefly at how we understand church leadership and the setup of church leadership and this brings us to the scripture. This brings us to the Bible. So there's very little to no biblical prescription or teaching, direct teaching on how a setup should be in a church. In other words, the Bible doesn't give instruction or commands concerning the structure of the church. So we do our best from the descriptions of the New Testament churches. We try to follow the design seen in the New Testament congregations and what the apostles practiced there. So from these, we gain applicable principles for how we ought to set up our churches. When it comes to church leadership, there's two basic tendencies among Protestants. So I'm going to leave out the, the Roman Catholics and Orthodox. won't be talking about that, that setup at this point. But these two basic tendencies... Um, that we, we see in, in Protestant groups, generally speaking, are congregational and then elder-led. So on the one side, the congregation votes on almost everything and has a part in almost all decisions. On the other side, usually there's multiple elders making most of the decisions with very little congregational input. Bridgeport, as I understand it, as I view it, we employ a sort of hybrid of that, those two things both congregational and elder leadership. I think it works quite well myself. But. So let's look at the congregational ap approach for just a minute. Think about that with me. Often this form of church government is structured with a single pastor as a single elder, no elder team in other words, with perhaps deacons or others that would serve the church in various ways. The argument would be that the New Testament does not require or teach um, the necessity of plurality of elders. It doesn't, doesn't require a team. It could be a single elder or a single pastor. The congregational method speaks to the voting power of the members to make most decisions. Coming to Scripture, this is possible, but it doesn't seem to be the, the entire flavor of the New Testament church. However, we do see the value, don't we, in our current culture, our, our society, as well as in Scripture for the input of all believers, for the input from the entire congregation. Why is it valuable to prioritize every Christian in the body? One of the main reasons is this concept of the priesthood of believers, the priesthood of all believers. That's out of Second Peter 2.5 
says that every believer is a priest before Jesus. That didn't used to be the case before Jesus. You had to go to the priest. And now he's saying, you all have the Spirit. You all can have wisdom. We all can have the ability to interpret the truth out of the Scripture. Not to mention gifting and calling, uh, different ability to serve the body in different ways. So that's an important aspect that we need to keep in mind as we think about the congregational side of leadership. In our case here, we recognize the freedom and value of the individual in our culture, in our society, and in God's view, the individual, the value of the individual, and we attempt to integrate that into our church structure. It also helps with checks and balances as we implement congregational voting to install elders and pastors, and as you know, many other decisions are brought before the body um, to vote on. So that's a little bit of, uh, a little, I should say, of the congregational approach. There's a lot more to be said on both of these and on the, the whole topic, but just a, a brief cover this morning. So let's talk about the elder-led view a little bit. Um, remember, we have these two general tendencies, congregational, elder-led. When we speak of elders, we mean church leaders, by the way. That may not be obvious. The, actually, the word means an older person, but it has come to mean um, the church leaders. In the scripture, part of the reason that is, is in the scripture there's basically three words that are used for leaders, um, but it appears, and this is a study for another time, but it appears that these words can be used interchangeably, so we're, we're simply just using the term elder. It speaks of those who govern, those who lead, who teach, who protect, who guide, who watch over, the local church or the congregation. The New Testament church appears to have elders as part of the structure, and that does have an S on the end. It's a plurality of elders. In Acts 14, 23, we see Paul and Barnabas on the, I think it's a missionary journey. They're, they're strengthening the churches. And the, the word says this, when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Later in Acts twenty seventeen, Paul calls the elders of the Ephesian church to him. So in, in these, I should point out Titus too uh, as well. Titus 1, 5, Paul admonishes Titus to appoint elders in every town. Now, that's not the leadership of the city, but the leadership of the church in that particular area. Just, he says, just as I directed you. Titus was in, in Crete, so these were the Cretan churches. So it seems for the Apostle Paul, it was the right and normal thing for there to be elders, plural elders, in every local congregation. We also notice the Apostles James and Peter speak to the elders in their letters in various contexts. Letters that were written to multiple churches, not just a single church, but to um, a, a variety of New Testament churches in different times and places. So they, they too, James and Peter, expected there to be plurality of elders leading each congregation. What are the reasons for the elders? What are the duties of the elders? Now this may look different. Different times, different churches, different places, it might look a little different. 
Generally speaking, elders are to be teachers, protectors, representative leaders, as well as overseers and shepherds, guiding, counseling, praying. We understand this team leadership concept to be that over that, a, a single elder. Plural elder leadership seems to be a New Testament constant. <clears throat> By the way, um, it, it's appropriate and scriptural for the church, Christians, to look to the elders for guidance and to be submitted by them as God's leaders in that local congregation. We get this out of Hebrews thirteen seventeen. It should also be noted that these elders are not perfect. Leadership is not perfect. All this fits in under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, and often we use the term the, the chief shepherd, that is Jesus himself. So to sum it up a little bit, we've, we've got this congregational tendency and the elder tendency that the people come to, they derive those from Scripture. Here at Bridgeport, we sort of have a hybrid. I'm, I may be making that up, but that's kind of how I view it. We value and employ both of these things to an extent. We see the plurality of elders, pastors, leaders in the scripture, and we value that. We recognize the need for teaching, oversight, leadership, protection, etc., those, those, those aspects. We also see in scripture the involvement of the people and the importance of every believer. So our system here at Bridgeport seems to be appropriate and to fit within scriptural principles that we derive from the New Testament church. And it's not overly complicated, which is just fine with me. The hope is, though, to find that balance of both and to be scriptural in our approach. So with this discussion, then, as our basis, I hope that makes some sense. That, that's a, kind of a flyover, very, very 30,000 feet flyover. We're, here, we're now talking about broadening the base of our approach here at Bridgeport. Broadening the base, by the way, doesn't mean lessening the congregational part of our structure, no less involvement in decision-making, in voting, in, in input. We want to broaden the base in the sense of elder involvement and perhaps thinking about it as coming to the forefront in, 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 in ways, emphasizing the side that has to do with the elder team. Now, we have always observed the elder team as the leadership team here, but as I see it right now, we want to be a bit more practical as, as we observe this and emphasize this side of it a little more. This is partly accomplished by the pastoral staff position that's been proposed. It's partly accomplished by giving all the elders more practical involvement, emphasizing the elders as the team leadership group, it's partly accomplished by taking some of the weight and responsibility off of the lead pastor or the single, the single man, um, that position not being full-time. Trying to push in a way of recognizing the elder team as our leadership team. And as I said, we, we've observed this in the past, but I see it as something to emphasize more and work out in the practices, work out the practices that should follow. How does that look? What is, what is helpful for us? And you saw some of those particulars in that email and the things Paul said a couple of weeks ago. 
Um, there'll be opportunity for each elder to teach and preach a little bit. The pastoral staff position will take a few Sundays as far as preaching um, from the pulpit, and the lead pastor uh, will be relieved of, of all the duties, the entirety, and um, will not be completely full-time. There's, there's other pieces to that. So then I asked the question, why? Why would we do this? Well, some of the answers you've already heard. Hopefully some of them are in your head. But we want to be biblical. We want to be as biblical, I should say. Again, I don't feel like we've not been biblical. But we want to be as biblical as we can in our leadership and our body structure. I think the emphasizing of the elders and giving each of them more of a voice and a place of service according to their gifting brings this about. It also spreads the responsibility out. This takes some of the weight off of one man's shoulders. I think that's a good reason. This is answering the question, why would we do this? And also, I see that it brings health and benefit to the body, to us. This is probably the main driving factor that we've been working with. It brings health and benefit to the body, to each of us. How does it bring health and benefit? Glad you asked. The multiplicity of voices, backgrounds, educations, viewpoints, perspectives. Think about the differences in style, gifting, ability, experience, and how we relate to one another. By the way, each of us learns differently. Some of you may not learn a whole lot from me, but when Paul Telfer stands up here, you're, you're impacted. You, you learn from him. That we, we learn. We, we, knowledge enters in different ways for each one of us. And we want the benefit of this at Bridgeport. That's the driving factor. We want the benefit of this. God using each of the elders to bring the truth of the word to us in different ways, each one using their gifts, their talents, their calling, their experience, etc., to communicate and challenge and encourage and exhort us. As I said, learning styles differ, relationships differ, emphasis and passion within theology differs. This is part of serving one another, the elders using their gifts for the health and benefit of the body. And let me just say that I'm not just talking about sermons or preaching or Sunday morning, though it is definitely part of this broadening of the base, but as a concept, bringing the truth from God's word to light and leading well may come in other ways and forms. Many have gifts that will not be ideally used up here, but in other settings, small groups, one-on-one, administration, decision-making, prayer, counsel, much more. I think you, you understand that. So hopefully, as you've pondered on these things for a couple of weeks, you've understood and recognized the value that we feel this brings. The value that we feel this brings. I believe that hearing and learning from God's word through multiple voices, each bringing their own style, their passions, their gifting to the body, will bring health and benefit. I believe the elders are here to lead and to teach the word and to encourage and exhort the body in various ways, now and then, from the pulpit. 
And we want to emphasize and move in this direction just a little bit more. I believe there's great value here. So it should be mentioned um, that here at Bridgeport, if you don't already know, most of you probably do, but the elder team is made up of the lead pastor and six other men that meet the requirements of Scripture as leaders and have been approved by the congregation in a vote. Except for the lead pastors, the elders serve six-year terms. I believe that it's, an, it's a privilege to serve as an elder of your congregation. The scripture actually says it should be considered a noble work. 1 Timothy 3.1, if anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. By the way, the requirements for elder that you've, you've read in, in the Bible most likely and, and have been talked about, these can be met by more than just the elders serving. They're good character markers and goals for all of us, especially maybe young men with a desire to serve the church. So as we think about this shift um, that I think is appropriate and good, the shift that brings health and benefit to the body, here's a few of the reminders of the particulars of these positions. The pastoral staff position will currently be filled by an elder. It allows this man to be freed up a little bit financially to bring leadership, discipleship, teaching, as well as assistance to the lead pastor and other things. It takes some of the burden off of just one man's shoulders and allows for more of a team approach to ministry here. This seems scriptural and appropriate, the plurality of elders. The lead pastor position is not a major shift from what we have known, but it will not be a full-time position. One of the elders, as I said, the general idea here with, a, with the lead pastor, as I understand it, as I'm seeing it, is that this man is freed up financially to do the majority of teaching and preaching, to provide continuity in leadership as well as other aspects like counseling and discipling. And, and in this setup, it increases the place of protection for the lead pastor within the elder team and accountability to them though we have always looked at it that way. We've had it set up that way to some extent. And of course, then the elders themselves will be more active here and there and sometimes bringing God's word to us from the pulpit. First Timothy 5.17, as an extra note, says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. We see here in other places that it's appropriate to financially reimburse an elder for their part in leading and teaching the congregation. I suppose that's not a verse that a pastor preaches on like that often. <clears throat> Hopefully that makes some sense um, as we look at some of what, my, what I understand we're shifting toward and my reasons or my vision for that. I want to share with you just a bit of a broader vision now. Another, a little bit of a shift here in this unusual message for this morning. If you're, if you're going to vote on a certain candidate and you're a, a serious voter for any, any political position or anything, you want to know a little bit about that person. And like I said, many of you know me, and um, some, but some of you don't know me. And I'd like to just share a little bit of broad, very broad vision for what I see Bridgeport should be about. And... Um, the churches of God here. 
Bridgeport exists and should exist to glorify God. How do we glorify God? Well, we have this motto, serving Christ by making disciples. I think that's a good way to glorify God. Serving Christ by making disciples. What is discipleship? Well, in brief, a disciple is one who desires to follow and emulate someone else. A disciple is learning to discipline themselves in coming under the authority of a master. Of course, for us, we mean following and becoming like Christ himself. We mean disciplining ourselves, humbling ourselves to know him and to practice his good ways, to submit to him as the master. So my broad vision for us is to learn more of what it means to be a disciple and to continue to grow in maturity. It's not that we're starting this right now, are we? But continuing, perhaps different perspectives and different methods. How do I fit into this goal? I think as I look forward teaching and preaching in such a way, this is how I would fit into this goal of glorifying God through discipleship, through growth, teaching and preaching in such a way that we're all being developed as disciples in our actions and our relationships, and we are glorifying him in doing, in so doing. We're pointing to him with our thoughts and our growth. Also, I think I fit into this goal to lead in such a way that our services, our classes, our events, our programs, our goals here at Bridgeport prioritize growth, prioritize discipleship. In so doing, we exalt God. We glorify God. Perhaps I fit into this goal by counseling in such a way that maturing and healing takes place in our discipleship journey. This brings glory to God to protect and guide in such a way as to retain and pursue sound doctrine and growth in sound theology, establishment in good theology. This leads to a good life and to God rising as our point of worship and not ourselves. I want to recognize him for who he truly is and what he has made us to be in these and all other things we do and we're a part of. My overriding goal is to lift our eyes to God, to exalt Him and turn our lives to Him. These are things we have been doing and we are now continuing to strive for here at Bridgeport. Maybe it goes without saying, but I will not be perfect in any of these things. It's only by the grace of God that we can attain these goals and that we strive for these goals. You're a patient group, and I appreciate that. And as I said before, I consider you're my, you as my family. I'm part of this body, just like any one of you. And we're in this together. That gives me courage. These goals, these hopes, these things that push us to glorifying God. Let's move from that discussion I would like to look at um, a scripture together if you've got your Bible there why don't you turn to 1st Corinthians chapter 12 
1 Corinthians 12, 12. We'll start in verse 12 of chapter 12. Let's just read that <clears throat> together and just have a, a little discussion about what's going on here. Let me read it. I'm going to read out of the Holman Christian Standard. It's not going to quite match most of yours, I'm sure, but 1 Corinthians 12, 12. For as the body is one and has many parts, and all the parts of that body, though many, are one body, so also is Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. So the body is not one part, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, and in spite of this, still belongs to the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I don't belong to the body, in spite of this, it still belongs to the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed each one of these parts, each one of the parts, in the body just as he wanted. And if they were all the same part, where would the body be? Now there are many parts, yet one body. So the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Or again, the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. But even more, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are necessary. And those parts of the body that we think to be less honorable, we clothe these with greater honor. And our unpresentable parts have a better presentation. But our presentable parts have no need of clothing. Instead, God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the less honorable, so that there would be no division in the body, but that the members would have the same concern for each other. So if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and individual members of it. And God has placed these in the church. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers, next miracles, <clears throat> then gifts of healing, helping, managing various kinds of languages. Are all apostles... Are all prophets, are all teachers, do all do miracles, do all have the gifts of healing, do all speak in other languages, do all interpret, but desire the greater gifts, and I will show you an even better way. So as we look at this passage, again, this is going to be a flyover, this is not a pick it apart, or you're going to be here until dinner time. But each one is important in the body of Christ, isn't it? Just like each member is important in your physical body. So the question then, how are we contributing to each other? What makes body life work well? I don't think that it's perfect leaders. I don't think that it's perfect leadership structure. I don't think that it's a perfect pastor or perfect committees or any other absolute best thing. I think it's the way that we treat one another. Look at this passage with me just a little bit. We, the analogy of the body in relation to the church, and I think, by the way, this would, it's appropriate that this be the local church, not the worldwide church, where Paul is talking about the local church in this, in this passage. Um, the value of being part of the body, the necessity of each one is brought forth. Many parts, 
but one body, verses 12 through 14. And by the way, different, complementing parts, not the same on purpose. Verse 14, 17, 19, and 20 points that out. Each of these parts is placed, wait for it, by God as he wanted. Not just because you happen to be there or because you happen to have this strength. Each one is placed by God in that part. Verses eight, verse 18 says, speaks to that. There's to be no division in the body based upon this, based upon God's formation of the body, verses 24 through 26. And then we see some of the gifts and the offices brought up toward the end of the chapter. And the very last phrase, look at that, what does it say? I will show you an even better way. Hang on to that. Now, I consider myself a part of this body, like I said, a part of you, this localized church. Church, My role, if we come to that as elder or pastor, is serving God and serving you as part of this body. That's the underlying motivation for anything I might the elder, the pastor position, it may be more obvious. It may be more upfront. Depending on who you are, it may be louder than other ways that we might serve. But it is a part. That's what it is. It's a part of this body. There's leadership, there's guidance, there's teaching involved, yes, but ultimately it's part of the body, the local church of Christ. What about your part? What about each one of our parts? Now, Again, we could spend a lot of time talking about the ways you might serve or the, gift, the, the gifts of the Spirit. Lots of discussion there that we can have someday. But today, I, I want us to focus on the motivation for the service. What is behind the things that we do? Why do we give and serve? In fact, listen to that. In fact, how do we know how we should serve? How do we know? Some of you don't. You want to serve, but you don't know how. The starting place brings us back to that last phrase of chapter 12 and then into chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13, does that ring a bell? The love chapter. <clears throat> Someday we'll go through that more carefully, perhaps. Um, but it's interesting that the discussion of the body in chapter 12 that we read doesn't end in verse 30 but there's verse 31 there's greater there's something greater and then this explosion in in chapter 13 about love paul defines christian love in an amazing way there in 13 so we need to understand then that each part of the body each gift each one of us must have love at the center we need to ask ourselves, do you, do I have love at the center of the service that I give to the body? Or is love at the center of the quest of how to serve the body? One of the marks of a disciple is love. This is agape love we're talking about. I'll define that just a little bit better in a second, but First John, John 4.10 says, Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us 
and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The love started with God. He sent his son. And then we love because he loved. It comes a bit hard to understand what is meant by this sort of love. In our society at large, as you know, we don't practice or define love as this word needs to be defined and practiced. This agape love is actually one of four common words used in the New Testament that are all translated love in our English Bible. Of course, there's a lot more to them than we get in our default definition of love. There's a lot more here for another time, okay? But just quickly, this love that's shown to us by God needs to be defined something like this. It's not warm, cozy feelings, necessarily. It's not impulsive, reactionary in its devices. It's not a flood of emotions or a lot of other things that might come into your head as we think about love. Maybe we can say that this love, in short, is unselfish. In other words, it does not seek its own enjoyment or pleasure or reward as primary. This love is also unconditional. It's acted upon regardless of reciprocity or justice perfectly acted out. And as opposed to a feeling, this love, this agape love, is a choice. It's a choice with the good of another in view. We choose to love based upon good theological understanding upon who God is. We may not feel like it, but we know it's to be right. We know it's right. So this love, this agape love is unselfish. It's unconditional. And it's a choice. Now, I feel that this has been a strong point for Bridgeport. 1 John 4.11 says, Dear friends, if God loves us in this way, we must also love one another. Jesus says in John 13.35, But all people will know that you are my disciples if you love, if you have love for one another. As I think about serving the body with your gifting and with my gifting, as we try to understand what it means to be a part of this body and to serve. We give to the body. We love. We interact. Even fit in. We even fit into the body. But behind this whole discussion, we find agape love. Chapter 13. It's the even better way. Love stands then as the motivator for being part of your body, part of the body, and part of my body here at Bridgeport. We don't all have the exact same theological beliefs and lifestyles. We don't all have the same background and experience. We don't share the same preferences necessarily. We hold different convictions and have different passions. But we choose to love God, and in doing so, we love each other. To come together and to commit together as a local church. This is not easy all the time, is it? But it's a choice that we're to make. 
And I think here that we find unity as we glorify God. We find unity as we glorify God. Disagreements, frustrations, issues, they're going to arise. But if love is the motivating factor behind how I serve you and how you serve me and each other, we will find unity. And the most important goal in so doing, we will bring glory to God. We'll bring praise to Him as those who follow Him, His disciples. Behind all the gifts, all the acts of service, all the body life functions, those things in chapter 12, behind all that is love. An unselfish, unconditioner, unconditional 1 Corinthians 13 love. We choose to care for one another. What is your love for others of your body? What does it look like? How does this motivate you to serve? Is love the motivating factor? I know it's been a little un untraditional this morning. I hope I've been clear on, on the discussion of broadening the base of our ministry, the shift and approach of how we are thinking about leadership here and why I, think, um, the, why I think there's value in it. As we As we finish then this morning, let us be challenged to check our hearts. What is the basis for serving one another, for serving God? What is the basis for church life? And I'm not saying in any way that we're devoid of love and care for one another, and therefore I need to bring this subject up. But there's always room for honesty as we think about our motives and actions. This is the basis of good body life and bringing glory to God. Not perfect leaders or perfect leadership structure, but humbly striving together to love God and to love each other with this agape love. I'm very thankful for each one of you, and I love you. It's a journey, isn't it? Let's, let's ask God for grace on this, on this journey. God, thank you that we have shared these moments together today. Thank you for the privilege of doing so. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for your guidance here at Bridgeport. We need your guidance. We ask for it continually. We need your mercy and your faithfulness. We are not faithful. We are not loving by nature. Without the Spirit, we're not. But we have the Spirit, and we have you. We Let us submit to you in this journey and learn more about what it means to grow in agape love. Thank you for the family that we have here together. Thank you that I can call this place family. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.